Today's Old Testament reading is Psalm 26, verses 1 through 8, um, and it can be found on, page, on the bottom of page 549, your Bibles. Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord and have not faltered. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in, res- in reliance on your faithfulness. I do not sit with the deceitful, nor do I associate with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go about your altar, Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise and telling of all your wonderful deeds. Lord, I love the house where you live and the place where your glory dwells. This is the word of the Lord. This morning's New Testament reading is from Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, and can be found on page 1138 in your pew Bible. Romans 12, 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Sherman Street. The Lord be with you. Amen. Would you pray with me? O oh Lord our God, I pray that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts together, your church, might be acceptable, even pleasing to your eyes. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, again, my name is Klaus. I want to thank you guys for having me uh, today to bring the word, for trusting me to... uh, bring God's word out of this text, which is kind of a difficult text, and to thank Jen and Tony for inviting me to be part of their um, sermon series, Becoming Who You Are Through Community. I don't know if they knew they were pulling a fast one on me by giving me the wrath and the heaping burning coals part and then going to Florida, but (laughs) that's what they did. So thanks, guys. So Becoming Who You Are Through Community, subtitle, by heaping hot coals on your enemies' heads. God's wrath is an uncomfortable topic, and I think it's one that we these days tend to avoid. At one point, though, wrath was all the rage. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, delivered a famous sermon 
Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Maybe you've heard of this sermon before. And it became a classic, not just in homiletics, but in really American literature in general. Fire and brimstone preaching was a genre all to itself. It was popular, it was well-known, and images of fire and torment were everywhere during the Great Awakening. So when we hear the phrase God's wrath these days, this is what we're inheriting. And these images of fire and brimstone and raining from the sky, of hell and lakes of fire, that's what we tend to think of. And so no wonder we tend to avoid it. It's not our sensibility, is it? But here's Paul in Romans 12, in the passage that we've been given for today, the word of the Lord, saying, leave room for God's wrath. Don't crowd it out. And I wonder whether in our context, in the 21st century in the West, if we've stopped doing that. Wrath is scary. It's uncomfortable. But nonetheless, here we are. And so I want to do, what I want to do today is make a little room, as Paul commands, make a little room for wrath and deliver a kind of fire and brimstone message of my own. Don't worry. <laughs> What's strange, I think, about uh, pushing aside ideas of God's wrath and anger in our culture today is that we don't seem to be any less angry ourselves. I began thinking about this sermon this week um, by asking my colleagues, do you think we live in an angry culture? And I would ask you all the same thing. Do you think we live in an angry culture? And their answers were, yes, of course. And even though it's just patently true that we live in a less violent world than Paul and the Roman church did, we're just as angry as we've ever been. So because anger plays such a big role right now, I think, in our culture, but not just that, in our most important communities, in our church as we acknowledged in our prayer of confession, in our cities, in our schools, in our friend groups. I think when we consider how to, as this sermon series doing, series is doing, become ourselves through community, we have to make room to consider anger. And that's anger that's within us and that is directed towards us from others as well. That we feel towards our political opponents, even sometimes our family members, our enemies, who maybe even were once our friends. So, anger, wrath. When I started thinking about wrath this week, I was kind of at a loss. And so I just started thinking about anything that didn't even have to do with wrath, but even just had it in the title. And so obviously, you could guess my mind first went to the John Steinbeck book, Grapes of Wrath, that I'm sure many of you had to read in your high school English class. And as you may know, the title, The Grapes of Wrath, is a reference to that famous song, The Battle Hymn of the Republic. Does everyone know this song, The Battle Hymn of the Republic? So the first stanza of that song goes, Mine eyes have seen the the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. In this song, which actually 
It was written by an abolitionist, the, the words were, it's a folk tune, but it was written by an abolitionist in that wrath is rightly directing God's anger towards slave owners. This song introduces us to, the common, to a common biblical metaphor for understanding the wrath of God, and that's grapes or wine or the wine press. So I want to look at this a second. That, that lyric, the grapes of wrath, is a reference to Revelation chapters 14 and 19. And those chapters depict God's judgment of humanity. Which again is something we tend to like to not think about. In chapter 14 reads, The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. Which, by the way, that's why the Grim Reaper, right, is always depicted with a, a sickle. He threw, the angel threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. So here God's wrath is depicted as this screen through which our actions will be evaluated. The question Revelation asks then is, how is the vintage? In today's scripture lesson, Paul references uh, He's always making references to the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, when he says, It is mine to avenge, mine to repay. That's the song of Moses, where God pronounces judgment on Israel for its faithlessness. But here's the context of the verses directly preceding that, It is mine to avenge. God says, Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are filled with poison and their clusters with bitterness. From a biblical perspective then, what I want to say is that the wrath or the vengeance of God as we hear it talked about here in Romans 12 is like the wine press that takes the grapes and presses out the vintage. It takes our actions and it reveals their true quality. It shows us who we are. And so wrath is thought of less as an essential quality of God in the Bible and instead as an instrument of God and really as an instrument of God's grace. But it's a, it's a painful grace because it makes us ask ourselves, do I produce good wine? God's wrath in the Bible also has this quality of being both future and present. So there's a sense in which it's now and not yet. There's a forward-lookingness to the book of Revelation. There's an eschatological, if you know that word, eschatological uh, looking aspect to it, but there's also a sense that it's experienced presently, that we experience this pruning as we go throughout our lives, that sometimes to become who we are, we need to get cut down to size. In the book of Romans, from which our passage for today comes, this second kind of wrath, this present tense wrath seems to be the one that Paul is mostly talking about. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes about the unfaithful. 
and those who are persecuting the Roman church. He writes about those who worship, as he says, the creature rather than the creator. And so he writes, and this verse has been used in a lot of unfortunate ways. I just want to say that as well. As it's, it's used to lob, cast stones at um, our LGBT brothers and sisters in faith oftentimes. Um, I'm not going to talk directly about that, but I just want just to read the verse. And it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all those, against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people. Right, so the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. This word, apocalypto, you might recognize, that's where we get our word apocalypse from. It's used in the present tense. God's wrath is being revealed. It's an ongoing process that they are experiencing there in the church of Rome. Their sinfulness, he's saying, is its own punishment. It literally is the wrath of God that they're experiencing by living in sin. So I think that the most faithful interpretation, honestly, I think that the most faithful interpretation for our passage today is that rather than seeking payback or vengeance, as Paul says, against your neighbor or your enemy, rather than one-upping or stewing in resentment and letting resentment fester, that leaving room for God's wrath means leaving room for God's wrath to express itself to our enemies in the here and now. Now, how does that happen? If wrath, anger, is a tool, and not a characteristic of God, but a tool of God, if it's the wine press that God uses then the present tense experience of God's wrath is like drinking the bitter wine that is produced by your own sour grapes. How many of us know how this feels? And I think in light of this, we're able to better understand verse 20 as well that kind of bizarre proverb that Paul references, it's from Proverbs 25, where he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And at that point, he sounds exactly like Jesus, right? And he says, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then he kind of stops sounding like Jesus a little bit. When we feed our enemy when we give them even good wine to drink, the cup will carry the bitter taste of spoiled wine. Not because we've done anything to it, but because love exposes the distance from which our anger separates us from, God, from who God intends us to be. And wrath, God's wrath, is both the pain of that realization and the invitation to come back into relationship. So even though it's a mixing of metaphor, this is precisely why a genuine display of love can feel like 
burning coals on top of your head. I wonder how many of us have been on the receiving end of those coals as well as the giving. I think anyone who has ever envied and been risen to anger and envy and received love in return knows how those hot coals feel. So in sum, Paul's understanding of God's wrath is as an instrument of God's grace, which sometimes painfully reveals our false self and beckons us back to Christ. So, what are we to do with this? We who live in an angry time and place. We who experience the anger of others directed at us, whether it's on like social media or just in very subtle ways and conversationally in our friend groups or our families even, or who look at ourselves and say, I've been holding a lot more anger recently as well. What do we do with this new idea of God's wrath? First, we take heart. We take heart because the wrath of God in its very existence means that God is moved by injustice. I once had a seminary professor speak at length of how grateful she was for God's wrath. Because when it comes to slavery, genocide, racism, human trafficking, we need a God who gets angry. God's nature is unchanging, but that doesn't mean God isn't moved by injustice, moved by human suffering and pain. And the Bible's emphasis, not just in the Old Testament but in the New, the emphasis on anger and wrath is our strongest assurance of this that God is moved by our pain. Secondly, we are invited to see God's wrath or anger in a new light as a tool and as a process and not as a characteristic. Like uh, the character Eustace in the C.S. Lewis book, The Voyage of the Don Treader. Have you read this? It's a Narnia book. He's an arrogant, self-centered boy, and he's turned at one point in the book into a dragon. And there's this scene where Aslan, right, the Christ figure, the lion, peels off his dragon skin and makes him human again. And Eustace says, it's the most painful thing I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling it come off. And that's the process of becoming who we are through that kind of painful grace. Feeling that skin come off. It's that process that wrath is. Finally, thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, in light of God's perfect anger and perfect wrath that is moved not quickly, right? In the Bible, it always says God is not quick to anger, but God has moved slowly to anger. It's measured anger. In God's perfect anger, in comparison to our own, which is maybe quicker and burns a bit hotter, 
and more unpredictably. In light of that, we're called and allowed to lay down our own anger. Because tending that fire takes work and it can be really exhausting. Anger and its own natural consequence, vengeance, which is what Paul talks about in our passage, anger and vengeance are extremely dangerous to us. Not only to those against whom they're directed, but to ourselves in our own hearts as well. Of course, anger is necessary and it's natural. Anger at being hurt, anger at experiencing or witnessing an injustice, or experiencing an illness, and so the anger may be even at God that we feel because of that. It's all normal, it's all a part of our human experience. And I want to leave room for that. Of course, we're angry, that's okay. But there's a place we can go to in our anger, I think, when we hold on to it for too long, where it becomes in a way kind of intoxicating, even kind of pleasurable to tend that anger, and it becomes a part of us. And this is the place where so little trust begins to exist in the communities that we need so desperately to survive that those communities begin to disintegrate. So after, after we've let ourselves feel it, we're invited to lay down our anger before God, before it takes over us and becomes the nature of who we are. Leaving room for God's wrath, recognizing that in the mysterious present tense, God has a way of teaching, molding, and making friends out of enemies. When we commit to becoming who we are in community, bound by the love of Christ and in humility lay down our anger towards our political opponents, our enemies, those who've hurt us, we leave ourselves open finally to the mystery of forgiveness. Now it's not my job to tell someone to forgive someone else who's perpetrated some terrible wrong against them. That's not my place and it's not really any of our place And I don't want to be doing that today. I don't want you to think I'm doing that today. But I do think that in embracing a community of difference, we leave the door open, whether we mean to or not, to the type of forgiveness that can only be experienced within the community of Jesus Christ. One of the main points of pain and Anger as well, because those two things oftentimes go together. In our church, in our denomination today, is the content of the HSR, this, the Human Sexuality Report. I'm sure some of you have, of you have heard of this. Um, and the rift over how to respond to what's in that report that our denomination has put together. Um, and the implicit claim that's, that's in this report that basically says that our LGBT uh, sisters and, and siblings and brothers in, in Christ basically don't necessarily have a place uh, so long as they express their sexuality or their gender, even in covenantal and faithful ways. And so many think there will be a division uh, in our church because of that. And maybe there will. I, I honestly don't know. 
And if there is, then I know that God will stay faithful. But I also want to say that we need to be reminded that for a community that's centered on Christ, not seeing a way forward is not the same as there not being a way forward. Because if Christ is among us, then wrath, anger, God's perfect wrath, not our own anger, makes it possible that we are surprised by grace. Because it makes painful recognition, genuine repentance, and true forgiveness possible. I want to end with a textual note. And this is, this is it. Verse 19, which I've kind of been focusing on today. Uh, he writes, Do not take revenge, my dear friends. My dear friends, agapatoi, that's the word he uses. It comes from the word agape, God's agape love. You may have heard that. So it's not friends, it's beloved ones. Ones who are loved with God's perfect agape love. And it's this love, God's love, that overwhelms even God's wrath. That saves us all from the worst of it. And that gives us the assurance of salvation. So, Sherman Street, as ones who are in the process of becoming who you are through community, of being shaped into who you will be, you are invited to let go of anger. To let go of anger towards neighbor, towards family member, towards self, towards fellow churchgoer. You are allowed to let go of the cup of reproof, that cup that you've been serving, that cup of wrath that tastes so bitter, and to take hold of the cup of the new covenant that is in Christ's blood, the wine that is the vintage of sacrificial love, and to let it nourish you and fill you and make you flushed with surprise at God's grace in and among you, molding you together into a community, agapatoi, beloved of Christ. Amen.